1: Hello and welcome to the Winners Find A Way Show. I am your host, Trent Clark. Super excited to see you here. As most of you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur, CEO of AIM for NIL, and I am an international speaker and longtime coach in professional baseball coaching in three World Series. Today, I have got my friend, Marty Strong. Marty, how you doing,
2: buddy? Trent, I'm doing great. That intro got me fired up, man. I like those drums.
1: Yeah, man. I'm I'm turning Get that audience engaged because I have got just some incredible people like yourself that come aboard and share their wisdom, their nuggets. Absolutely incredible. And it's going to be no different, Marty. No pressure, but it's going to be no different. I'll be okay. All right. Tell them where they can find you, Marty Strong.
2: Marty Strong, nimble.com. That's my website. All my books are there, articles, what I do. All That's awesome.
1: Okay. And you're on LinkedIn. I saw that too. So Marty, let's talk a little bit about your background. You national university, start out there, Cali. You're a Nebraska kid, right? Right. And how do you go from Nebraska to national university in Cali? How's that happen?
2: Yeah. So, well, I I left Nebraska when I was 17 to get out of Nebraska. I joined the Navy.
1: Yeah. And I understand
2: it. So I was in the Navy in the beginning with the radar air traffic control school through a mistake in orders. I ended up getting sent to San Diego to the seal course, the basic seal course. And while I was trying to figure out what the mistake was and, and they were willing to figure it out, they talked me into volunteering into the seal program. So I ended up doing six month course, graduated one of the 13 originals out of the original 126 that started. And when I came back eight years later, I was the senior enlisted in charge of that first selection phase. And I went to school at National University at night to get my uh, my undergrad degree. And then later on, I went back and got my management. That was a few years later. but
1: Yeah. yeah. Very cool. All right. So yeah, I understand the concept. I'm a Michigan kid, man. I just recall like, man, I can't wait to get out of this weather. It was like my deepest desire. And I love Michigan now, live here now. But okay, so you touched on a pretty good subject here, which is that you were a, a Navy SEAL. I mean, and, uh, you know, loved Warrior Elite, great book for people who haven't read it, right? Just to talk about how going through a class is so big. I love a couple of specials they've done on like history or discovery Mm -hmm. and uh, just amazing to see it. And I have some experience with Dr. Troutwine, who did some psychological profiling on, and he did all the NFL guys and he had experience with the SEALs. So Amazing, some of the mindset stuff that goes on. We're going to touch on a lot of that today. Is that right?
2: I hope so, because it's an interesting topic, and most people have uh, seals kind of pigeonholed into Marvel comic book characters, and they're really not. They're not all
1: Jocko. Jocko's like <laughs> Jocko. Hey. I always think uh, he's a character.
2: And Jocko communicates in a way that people miss. I think completely underestimate and misunderstand him. He's a. Yeah, I put him through buds. He was one of the students when I was in charge. And wow. uh, yeah, he's an extremely intelligent guy. And uh, but you know. Most of the SEALs are either very quiet or they're very, very straightforward and they're always underappreciated or underestimated because nobody thinks of SEALs as intellectuals. But to get into the SEAL program, you have to have like be in the top 5% of all the aptitude battery tests. You have to have a high IQ. Yeah. And so think of like a college, you know, college level athlete, peer athlete with an IQ of, you know, 125 plus who has psychological resilience emotional maturity and then you throw them in and, and then train them into becoming a, you know, basically a warhorse. So
0: yeah, it's a
1: good deal, man. I mean, it's a great mix and, you know, it kind of separates, you know, who's really getting it done at that highest level. I mean, coming from major league baseball, kind of same thing, right? You have a lot of people who are talented, but you know, your stars are, you know, these people who really have that intellect and the mindset combined with the physical aptitude. Right. And so it's pretty crazy. We're gonna talk more about that too, but now you married, five kids, five grandchildren, and you're a two-time cancer survivor.
2: Right, all true.
1: That's pretty fierce, man. Like what was your cancer battle? Same thing twice or what happened?
2: There? No, 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 the, the first one was kidney cancer and they caught it real early. And I had one of those da Vinci robotic surgeries. So that was good. They got all of it and didn't have to take my whole kidney or anything. I finished the five year protocol a year ago for, for that. So I'm good. And then about three years ago, I got skin cancer enough that I have an odd skin cancer. So I had to have that taken care of. And so basically those are, those are the two. And I, you know, I kind of got up and I had to wait eight weeks after the, the cancer kidney surgery and everything before I could work out, which was killing me, but yeah, I didn't really, That's anything.
1: I don't know. Yeah. That doesn't co- equate to a seal, you know, at any time, like no workouts for how many weeks? Come on, man.
2: Eight weeks. Yeah. We're bad. We've always been bad patients. We don't, Follow the yeah.
1: yeah i appreciate that athletes are much, very similar by the way okay so now you're an author of be nimble you're an author of be visionary which is your newest book excited about you know your business leadership books and then of course the newest one coming out be different we're going to talk about when's that release date for be different
2: i'd say probably january of 24
1: oh cool okay yeah. Good. Are you all the way through it already? And it's now gone no, to edit?
2: Or? Halfway through the sixth chapter, I've got the Ford's going to be done by a, a guy who's a specialist in brain science and soft skills at McKenzie and Company out of Stockholm. It's a guy I know through one of my connections. He writes brilliantly about judgment, wisdom, a lot of the soft skills that are missing. They do global surveys and so kinds of things that, that I focus on a lot in the third book. So uh, yeah. Where are you living now? I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia.
1: Oh, okay. Now, did you land on there for any particular reason, or what took you to Virginia Beach?
2: Oddly enough, so the seals are only in two places. They're in San Diego, California, and they're in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I spent 16 out of my 20 years in Virginia Beach. Okay. I did two, two, two tours in San Diego, not counting the student one. So, in my adult life, I've spent more time in Virginia Beach than any place else. I went to work for Leg Mason as a financial advisor after. Two and a half years, I went to uh, United Bank of Switzerland, ended up being a portfolio manager there. Rounded out about an eight-year career all in, all up in Northern Maryland. Got a job offer, came down to Virginia Beach in 2005, and I've been here ever since. Okay, nice.
1: Now, very cool. I also went to another location in the United States that I thought was pretty cool about the SEALs. Last spring break, I went to the SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce.
2: It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's now it's a national museum. It yeah. I just got that, I think, a year ago.
1: Yeah. It's no yeah, joke, one good, man. One of my good I've got, I've got the t-shirt. I've got the t-shirt to prove it, man.
2: You probably <laughs> met one of my friends. She's the, the the docent there. Oh, that's
1: cool. It was a really cool experience for me and my kids. We, we we really dug it. Okay, so now what most people don't know about Marty Strong is that you're this cool business leader, writer, executive coach, mentor, but you're also the author of nine novels. You are actually ML Strong, and you've written all these novels. You got you got a great series. Kind of, kind of centered around the SEAL kind of aptitude there. And then every proceed that goes from that book goes back to the SEAL program. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So I've got four books in a time travel series called the Time Warrior Sagas. And the, the second five book series is all SEALs. Same character, basically evolving or Actually, devolving towards the end, you know, like all like all of us do after he's <laughs> yeah
1: I got
2: ca- cashiered out with injuries and things. I think in the third novel, but the uh, proceeds go to the Seal Veterans Foundation, specifically to a program that focuses on getting veterans help with getting their disability for PTSD and brain trauma recognized by the VA. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of programs once it's been recognized, but the hard step is if you weren't diagnosed with that in the service, they won't talk to you. So that program kind of bridges that, gets them set up, and so then they can see all the the bigger money, the bigger pools of money that are in foundations and, and the government programs. So yeah, so all the proceeds from all those nine books go go there. That's so cool. All
1: right. Let's talk a little bit about young Marty Strong sitting in Nebraska going, Yeah, you know, I'm gonna be a SEAL one day, right? Like everyone's planning for in their life. I mean, is that your path? What are you thinking you're gonna be when you're 14, 15 years old?
2: I knew what I wanted to be, lead singer in a rock band, okay, or an archaeologist. Okay. It turns out the Indiana Jones was exactly what I wanted to be. It was kind of a combination of stuff. I wanted to, I still love anything to do with treasure hunting and, you know, Curse of Oak Island, any of that stuff. I've got that yeah. itch. Someday I'll, I'll have time to go out and metal detector, you know, something for fun. But yeah, that's what I thought I was going to be. I did have a little feeling that I might want to be a writer because I did writing. I read voraciously when I was a kid. Okay. But I was just trying to get it. My, my parents' marriage blew up. My mom, I ended up with my mom. She was schizophrenic, alcoholic. So I eventually got the hell out of that situation, went to go live with my dad, and then I had to make a choice. If I was my dad wasn't gonna help me with college and I had 4.0 average, but I wasn't smart enough to know how to ask for assistance. And back in those days, nobody really knew there wasn't anything online and all that. Yeah. So uh, a friend of mine wanted to join the Marine Corps. We went to the uh, recruiting station. I saw a, a film strip, film strip of the Marine Corps boot camp and everything. I was 125 pounds. My friend was a middle linebacker. I went to the bathroom bumped into the Navy recruiter, gave me his card. And I decided, because I said, there's no way I can run around carrying a bunch of, you know, bunch of weight on my back. And there's no way I could be a Marine. So I joined the Navy because the film strip scared me away from becoming a Marine. And oddly enough, because of the mix-up and orders later on, I ended up at the SEAL training thing and ended up carrying as much, if not more weight on my back later on.
1: Yeah, right. That's crazy, right? Like how things work in life. I mean, but uh, I'll tell you that you know most of the successful one percenters I speak to, Marty, have been through some pretty tough things as kids. I mean, building yeah. up resiliency certainly doesn't feel like a gift at the time, right? To be in a home with a, a mom with being, you know, having tough challenges and obviously a tough scenario, right? Because this mental health is is getting the best of her. And yet you come through that and go, man, like I'm a lot better than an adult because of some of the stuff that I had to deal with as a kid.
2: Yeah. David Goggins in his book and man, I just, I can't believe Mike Day, the the seal that was shot 27 times, his book, Perfectly Wounded. Both of them had the same kind of experience as kids. And I don't think I realized that, and even when I was an instructor, I didn't realize the kind of twisted gift that I was given and that they both call out in their books was this psychological resilience, the kind of the scar tissue that you'd been taking so many negative things as a child. And you can go either way, right? You can go down the tubes or you can or you can stand up and say, you know, this isn't, this doesn't define me. I, I'm going I'm to get out of here and I'm going to become a hero of my own story. I'm going to write my own story. And in the case of the three of us, that's kind of where we ended up going, right? Not everybody does that, but that is definitely clearly key discriminator going into a, an elite program, whether it's the SEALs or Green Berets, you know, because you, you're you psychologically tested. Everybody thinks it's a physical process. The physical stuff is to wear you down so that psychologically you give up. It has nothing to do with you physically. If you pass out, you pass out. Yeah. You know, they put you in a truck They give you some water and you wake up and keep on going. It's, it's not about that. It's if you pass out and you wake up and you decide I can't do this anymore. Well, then they've achieved their objective. They've, they've weaned you out. of the career. Yeah.
1: The old adage, fatigue makes cowards of us all. You know?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, crisis reveals character. That's another one. So if you're having a psychological crisis every day in SEAL training, it reveals one thing or the other, you know? And, and I'm yeah. not saying that, that you aren't a good person or a courageous person because you decided to leave a program like that. The program's designed to try to help you come to grips with whether you really want to do it enough. And you can go off and be, I mean, I know people that left and became incredibly successful in the Navy and other programs. Super smart. You couldn't have got in if they, weren't, if they didn't have the prerequisites, right? But they decided in the moment that they didn't think it was for them. And unfortunately, the training, the screening, isn't the job. Yeah. It's the screening. You yeah. know, the job's what you learn later on down the road. Sliding down ropes and jumping out at fifteen thousand feet at night in a formation with a bunch of guys, you know. That's the job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was always when I read Warrior Elite, actually, I was amazed at like the low bar of the physical aptitude test to qualify. Right. Cause I was like, hey man, I can do this stuff right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, it wasn't like, oh man, like you got to knock out a thousand pushups and you got two hours or something, right? Like it was like, oh man, like, can you do like a hundred pushups? I was like, man, there's a lot of people in good shape who can just meet these physical, just physical, right? Now, yeah. are they going to meet the mental capacity? Are they going to meet the intellectual capacity? You know, like, I don't know about that, but yeah, I, I was blown away by it. I was like, wow, I would thought they would have higher standards, but okay. So let's take a walk into what what's really, I think, critical for people who listen to the show. If you're joining us on the show for the first time, like we talk about the tough things. We talk about how do you become elite? How do you work through difficult times? How do you work through the challenges? Love the quote winners, when shown data that they are losing, find a way to win. I look to surround myself in all my businesses, in my home, around my friendships with people that absolutely have figured that out. I don't like to spend time with victims. I don't like to spend time with people that feel like, hey, I, I can't find a solution and you know, I give up. I don't understand the language. So I bring on people that talk about the reality that here's a successful, and Marty's no different here, a successful person sitting in front of you and it has not been a rose colored path the whole way. I mean, it is not trust fund and look how easy this is and oh, hey, I'm, I'm gonna do this because the things that happen to you are happening for you to shape that character, to design that. And so Marty, I want to talk a little bit about that first time, like one of those early challenges that you faced where you felt like, Hey man, the data is all up against me, man. I am, I'm not winning. (laughs) This is not working. And what you did about it, what did you do to change the situation? How did you direct that in a different way, either personally or professionally.
2: Well, outside of the seal paradigm, when I left the service, I went to work for Lake Mason Wood Walker, and went through a four-month training program. Had to take about seven different licensing exams and things, so I could trade bonds and stocks and mutual funds and life insurance and stuff. And that seemed very academic, and it was some of it was tough. But I thought at the end of it, you know, when I'm done, I'm going to have a, a desk, and they're going to give me new people walking in off the street, and I'm going to make them clients, and and I'll start managing their money. And what I found out was that that worked in some of the bigger cities and some of the bigger offices, but I wanted to live and work in a small town called Bel Air up in Northern Maryland, which had a branch of Lake Mason. So I go there and they said, yeah, well, you're not getting any of the walk-ins. You're not getting anything. Good luck. And as a matter of fact, if you want to go to the dead file where they had all these books of all these old client cards, go at go for it. You can re- you can call every one of those. If you can convince any of them to come back to Lake Mason, they're yours. <laughs> I'm like, well, how am I going to manage money if I don't have any clients? I said, exactly. The branch manager was this old crotchety Scottish guy who'd been doing this since the late sixties when there were bullpens of like a hundred guys per floor ringing bells every time they sold a hundred shares of stock and everything. And I went and sat down after he told me that. And I stared at the screen of the computer for about an hour because I only got a salary during the training period. It was all commissions and fees after that. And I had little kids and I just left the military. And I'm thinking, what the heck did I just do to myself? Mm. And I also realized if I've got to go out and find people, I've got to be able to sell them on me, sell them on the company, sell them on investments. I had never had one class in sales in my undergraduate degree in business or in my, my graduate degree in management. There's no sales classes.
1: Yeah, right.
2: So I stared there. I sat there and stared for about an hour. And the, you know, the, I told you I have a motivational speech. I call the, the voices in your head. And I, I would tell you, the voices in my head were pretty much saying, okay, come to grips. This is reality. You made a big mistake. You got to go find a real job, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I thought about it and I got up and I left for the day. Didn't want to tell my wife that I'd made this stupid mistake after all this effort and all and everything. So after about three or four hours at home, I sat down and I said, who do I know that knows how to sell? And my father-in-law knew how to sell and that was about it. And he sold machines that put clear wrapping around meat. There you go. And I'm like, okay. I don't know what I can learn from a guy who's selling machines that do that. But So I called him up. And I told him my you know my dilemma. I whined to him and everything. And I was very much feeling like a victim of my own stupidity, not thinking yeah. through it. Didn't ask him all the right questions. When I you know how did I get this far into it? And he said, "I hey, look, you know you're articulate. You, you used to teach all the time in the teams. You've given speeches. You're you're not afraid to be in front of people." People like you. you. You you're very trustworthy. And back then, you know, I was like 37. I looked like I was 26. He goes, just go out there and be you. And I said, that's it. He goes, no, no. There's a couple other things. So he he laid out what I had to do. You know, I had to cold call strangers about 400 times a day. He said do that from Monday to Thursday, and on on Fridays, go out and cold walk all the businesses and meet all the local blue collar millionaires, and uh, just keep doing it. And what'll happen is. You'll get 99 no's before you get the one yes. But if you put the time in, put the work in, it's going to happen. And then, then it all comes from referrals. Once you click over that that tipping point where you have five or six or seven people in the county that know you, boom, right? And he was right. But man, talk about humbling. I went from being, you know, a seal officer, you know, ops officer, XO at a seal team, to suddenly I'm walking up and down Route 40 in Maryland, knocking on doors. <laughs> <laughs> say hey you don't know me but you probably should because you know i'm really smart and i can take care of you and yeah that was yeah. that was bad on so many levels
1: i think first of all let's give some grace for the fact like it's not uncommon for people to feel like a victim like and it's an easy emotion to jump into right it's an easy place to get to when we're like oh man i've screwed this up i was duped you know i mean they paid me a salary i've been studying my butt off and now look where I am, you know. Like I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways, but you know, uh, as opposed to staying in that for 20 years, you stayed in it for four hours, right? And there's the big turn: is yeah. that, hey man, how long am I gonna do this? And and what's the value of me being there? Because me being there doesn't get me to the next point anyway, right? So you go and figure out, hey, what you, who are your resources? What do you have available to you? Who's a who has an ability to help? Love that. I mean, I think it's huge. Let's come back to the voices in your head because, man, I mean, when things are hard, voices in your head are saying, you know, I, I have a story talking about when I wanted to play in the majors, right? I remember kind of putting that into the world when I was 12 years old, you know, and I did an assignment for school. And man, I mean, when I started talking about that people, people looked at me like I was a green alien, you know, like, you gonna play where? you want to do what? You know the percentages and the odds of that. Like You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough, man. And the voices in my head started telling me like, hey, Trent, you're not enough. Now I'm like, man, this isn't a good position to be in, man. <laughs> this, is, this is not going to work. So I'm fighting those demons every day, which are internal, in addition to all these external demons who are, by the way, great people. Great people who are looking out for my best interest. I don't think they meant any malice towards me. They probably had no idea my level of commitment to go and try and do that right but it logically it made perfect sense to be like hey kid plan b might be a good idea here right <laughs> you know it's probably probably the same advice i would have given you too, marty if you said rock star and i'm like oh lead singer for journey huh like you know there's a guy tyler's pretty good at that like you know what do you, what else are you thinking right so talk to me a little bit about what you learned about, because I mean, the seals is all about the voices in your head because right now, you know, I, and for people again, who haven't read some of Marty's books and read like a warrior elite and know some of the stuff. I think when they go through hell week and they are just going to bring your body temperature down to a, a place where you can barely function, you know, the idea of what's going on in your head, it's not unicorns and rainbows, right? This is not sunshine. This is pretty dark.
2: Yeah. I mean, I almost quit. Before the class even started, it was about two or three weeks of us, what they call manning up, getting everybody vibing. Because everybody wanted to be a SEAL. Everybody had been trained to be a SEAL. You know, I'd walk into the huge, huge military-style bathroom. Guy with his shirt off it looked like the cover of Fit Magazine doing a double nunchuck, you know, kata. And I'd be like, what am I doing? I mean, I was 125 pounds, 17, to looked like I was eight years old, pretty much. So I don't know why... I made it to the first day. But then once the first day happened, it, it you're so sucked into it. You're running six miles total just to go to the chow hall and back every single day. Yeah. It's a mile there and a mile back. So that's not even counted as training. So you said about the PT test in the beginning. It's not that daunting. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be enough to get you to where you start this long process of being broken down. Yep. And there are some things that are that are a little bit scary, that longer runs or longer swims. But for the most part, it's, it's an evolution of... Causing you to get so fatigued. That's why some of the elite athletes that come in there. Mike Day talked about this in his book too. The observation they had never not been an exceptional athlete. They'd always been a top performer athletically. Yeah. It was yeah. that was part of their self esteem, their self image. We had a guy when I was an instructor that quit. He was two years early. He'd been number three in the Hawaiian Iron Triathlon. Yeah, I mean. And he quit on a on a mild base swim in a sunny day, at like 10 o'clock in the morning. So it, the fatigue gets you down. And I made it all the way to Hell Week. We lost half the class. And then I had three other roommates. And we all felt like we were survivors. We were going to make it because we made it that far. They kick off Hell Week on a Sunday night. We had a plan, but we weren't in the same boat crew. So they break you up into boat crews of 7-9. Yep. So when the machine guns fired and the bombs started going off, we dove out the window. I guess that was, wasn't an original plan because the instructors were waiting outside there. So <laughs> we got punished even worse, got sent in the ocean, rolling around the surf and then the sand came back. So I, the momentum sugar thing, cookie, they call that yeah, a sugar cookie. Yeah, sugar. So I come back on Wednesday and I haven't really, now I'm in a fog, right? I don't, I haven't seen or even thought about the other roommates. Don't know how many people are in the class. I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. I said, get up into the barracks and go get something out of your room. So we all ran in there. I get to my room, I open the door and we had single bunks and three of the four bunks, instead of being horizontal, were flipped up vertical on the wall with no linen. And the floor in front of all of them was clean, like polished, you know, mopped and waxed almost. And mine was down horizontal and there was this muddy, sandy strip going to my locker. And I looked at it and it was like like a combat, like a movie scene. They're gone because they whisk them away. Yeah. I'm the only guy left. Out of this group, who I thought all of them were, had a better chance than me, which is totally psychological warfare, right there. Like yeah. it's a it, 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 this is
1: a psychological move to beat at you, right there, right?
2: Yeah, but that was a turning point for me because I first I got shocked, then I got kind of goofy about it. And then I stopped and thought, hell yeah, I survived. I'm halfway through hell week.
1: I'm, I'm still here.
2: I, I was better than those three guys. I was better than the 60 guys that didn't make it to hell week. And I never thought about quitting ever again, you know, for the rest of the rest of course. So that turned um,
1: on you so to, that became the confidence booster.
2: It was, yeah. Cause it's, I've done adventure racing and stuff and I did one with my wife and I, all these hundreds of these elite athletes show up. They're exteric points, events and everything. And I said, don't worry about it. It's like the tortoise in the hare for 12 hours. We're just going to not get lost very much. We're going to keep a steady pace and you watch (laughs) what happens. And about six or seven hours, the meat wagons picking people up off the road because they're bonking. They they don't know how to do, you know, the, the, the biologicals, all the other stuff, you know, they're not drinking enough, eating enough. And you end up at the very end and there's 42 people that finished and you're 31, but 160 started. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it was about attitude and a little bit of brain power and just not quitting. It wasn't about how fast you were, how expensive your bike was, or anything like that. So you learn that lesson, I think. And the the older I've gotten, the more I've learned that lesson. It's not about the trappings are cool. It's not about, what you think of yourself it's about you against the reality and if the reality changes and you're not up to it you got to adapt and you got to train you prepare and then you got to get up to that new reality i don't care if it's business life whatever it is. i love this
1: you know thing that you talk about that mike touched on in his book i mean i i call it the confidence game right because at the major league level, you know, there's a lot of athletes that just, you know, they just go through it. And it's like, no one ever is really at my level, you know, (laughs) like, and then you get to that top level where, and you know, probably like 40 or 50% of these guys, this is the first time they meet their match. Right. And so like, how do you respond to that? And there's a number of people, and I don't know what the percentage is, you know, Marty, but there's a percentage of people that they can't manage it. They can't manage it mentally. And I call it the confidence game because I watch and literally it's almost physical. It's visceral Mm -hmm. watching confidence leave the body. Right. And it's like, man, you know, yesterday, you know, they walk into the clubhouse. Hey, Marty, what's up? Yeah. Hey man, I'm here. Like, you know, let's go. And the next day it's,
2: oh, just, we used to watch. We yeah. we used to read eyes all the time as buds instructors. We could we could tell. We could write down exactly who was going to quit. You could see it in their eyes. And Viktor Frankl in *Man's Search for Meaning*, talking about his experience. Yes. You know, in the German death camps, he says exactly. I mean, almost word for word. Within a couple of hours, he saw people shut down, and that was it. He knew they were done. Yep. You could see it in their eyes, and you know, it's and you could try to drag them back from that, but there's a point when they get they get to where they believe what they're hearing instead of being the, the voice in their head, they're listening to the voices in their head. But I think you have to get out of your comfort zone. And the more you do it, the more you get used to the to the process. You have to have, you know, I, I teach and talk about intellectual humility is the basis. You strip out all your accolades and all your failures and you get clear minded. Then you have intellectual curiosity, you suck in everything, 360 degree situational awareness and whatever you're doing. Listen to people you don't normally listen to, seek get information insights from weird places. And then the third step is intellectual creativity because you can be intellectually creative and reshape what your world is or what your business looks like if you've done those other two steps but the key one is the humility one. And if you haven't been humiliated, it's a hard thing to get to. So you got to practice it a little bit by getting yourself out there.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, let's talk about the next challenge like for you. I mean, as a father, you lose one of your child. You, you lose one of your children. I mean, I don't I think that's most parents worst nightmare. I mean, they can't think of anything much worse than that. As, yeah. Yeah, talk to me about like going through that. Not just you, but you know, it's not just you. You got to be the stronghold of the family as the father and you're lifting this thing up with additional children and a, a spouse that's probably, you know, you're addressing that on all sorts of levels.
2: It's interesting you said stronghold. There's like my family got me a there's a big metal thing right over here on my back porch over the deck. It says stronghold. Yeah. I mean, So my son was 22. He just got back from a tour in Iraq. And ironically, I told everybody that was concerned about him, I said, he'll be safer there than he is driving around in a car here in the United States. And he died in a car accident at nine o'clock in the morning in an ice storm, Mm. going back from visiting us for Thanksgiving. So it doesn't terrible when you lose a kid at any age. And when they're that age, you know, you've already started really thinking about them as an adult. They're starting to be an adult. You're thinking of them as a family person. What are the kids going to be like? How are they going to be as a father or, you know, or as a mother? And all that stops and for that for that one person, that storyline ends yeah. and they're frozen forever. Like in this case, at the age of 22, the, you know, he got full honors, he's at an Arlington and all that kind of stuff. I think the hardest thing for me was to be the, the patriarch strong person. And I'd say it was hard because that's kind of my natural thing on almost any other situation. Yeah. You know, but. I mean, oh, and,
1: and by the way, you've done it a lot. Like that's actually easy.
2: In most situations because you
1: have a lot of repetitions being that person
2: yeah and i've lost lots and lots of friends and family other you know older family members and stuff so i understand death and i've come to grips with my thoughts about it but that thing hit me and i thought okay first i had to get one of my my other son out of college because he found out while he was in college so we drove up and got him out at two o'clock in the morning and i think because of his reaction me and my wife realized that we had to kind of you know soldier up and be strong for as long as we had to be strong which was pretty much through the whole process and until, you know, all the ceremonies were done and all that. And then after that, everybody has doubts about everything. They have doubts about religion. They have doubts about their own life. They have doubts about their own future. I'm talking about my kids and other kind of family members. And so you have this residual responsibility or you don't, kind of depending on whether you want to pick it up or not, right? And and so I didn't really have a chance to stop and just chill out and think about it for myself, probably six or seven months. Wow. And, And then after about a year, I came to grips with it and said, okay, this is how I'm going to think about it. But one of the things I did was... I said, we're not going to recognize the day he died in that car wreck. We're going to recognize his birthday. And so I told all my kids, I said, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to, when he was here, he left a half bottle of of flavored vodka. So I'm going to put that out there with a shot glass. And me and my wife are going to put whatever we like to drink with shot glasses. We'll put a little birthday cake. We're going to write a message in a birthday card. We're going to do a shot. We're going to take the birthday card out. and We're going to set it on fire and let it go up to Valhalla. And we've been doing that for 16 years. And they yeah. all jumped in it. So we all take pictures of it and send it to each other when we're doing it. Trying to make it more of a celebration of who he was, you know, instead of the event. And that was one of the things I came to grips with, you know, after a while.
1: Yeah. So for people out there that are, you know, struggling with that, man, that's that's a lot of delayed grief, man, like not because, again, the stronghold, right? Like you play your role. And but, you know, man, that can eat people like you don't ever finally get the time. And when you do get the time. And you can actually lean into it a little bit, man, that's, those are hard days.
2: Yeah. And especially, you know, I'm an expert at between growing up in the situation I grew up in and then seals and combat and everything you, you compartmentalize, right. And it's a survival skill, Yep. but but compartmentalizing doesn't mean you, you destroyed it. It just means you put it away and then there's things that can trigger it. Right. So maybe like three years later, my wife and I were watching some Disney movie or something, and a little boy that's in the movie, you know, dies. He falls into a stream or something and dies, and I would just explode bawling like a little kid. Yeah. Not because of him.
1: Yeah, right. Like, it's, they have, but, this isn't because it's the best writing Disney's ever had. Like, it, you know, like, it's because, in my mind,
2: I... Especially in the beginning, I kept thinking of him, a six, seven year old kid, you know, at that age where they aren't saying, I hate you, dad, it's where they, you know, they want to go everywhere with you, dad. Yeah. That that kid kind of personified that. And I didn't realize until I was bawling that, you know, prize the heck out of my wife. But anyway, you know, that then went on for a couple of years, but then eventually that stopped. And, and so, you know, I've got a huge blow up picture of him in my fitness room around the corner here. And I say hi to them every morning. And that's cool. Let's talk a a little
1: bit about, I mean, what we call counseling quitters, (laughs) right? I mean, this is a tough gig and I'm always flabbergasted by the numbers of the Seals game, which is a lot of people come in and they're all highly qualified and already the best of the best. I mean, you know, we're watching all the playoffs, right? You know, I went to three World Series and now I'm watching the NHL playoff shakeout. The NBA playoffs are shaking out. And we just watch the NCAAs, right? And I like to remind people, you know, there's only one winner in the end. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, everybody else loses their last game except one team, right? So, like, there's a lot of tough things when you don't win. And, like, you kind of touched on this earlier where it's like, it's just because you didn't win this SEALs game, there's a bunch of people that didn't graduate, Buds but went on to great careers in the Navy and went on to start companies and invent things and become lawyers and, you know, contribute to society in a lot of great ways. Right. So talk to me about like the, that first initial counseling of a quitter, man. When those eyes go dark, it's like, Hey man, I don't think I'm going to make it.
2: Yeah. They're much better at this, by the way, they actually do post, uh, they call, it's called drop on request or DOR when they quit. They do much, much better job now of, of working with them. So they don't get depressed and anything. to point out what you just said, because, you know, on average, going back to 62, it's about 500 candidates that are screened down to about 100 to 130 people for the class to start. So you already went from 500 to 130. And then you lose about half of them before Hell Week. And then you end up with 25% historically, you know, make it 75% is the attrition. So really what well, the first thing is, you had, the, you had the guts, the audacity, the drive to volunteer to go through all that. And if you got through the 500 and you're 120, 500. Already, you're down-selected elite, right? And then if you get to Hell Week, you're down-selected again, and if you get through Hell Week, you're down-selected again. So if you get to the end, sure, you get to go into the SEAL teams, but if you don't make it that far, what does that say about you? That still puts you in the top 5% of yeah. people in the Navy, for sure, maybe even the military at large, because you made it that far, and you were selected from all those attributes and capabilities. And I think, so when I went through, when you quit, they just put you in a truck, took you across where all the ships were and stuck you on a ship and started painting and they didn't care about your psychology or anything. (laughs) When I came back as an instructor eight years later, they were smarter. So if guys dropped down at different points, they'd send them to deep sea diving school or bomb disposal because they were smart. They were really sharp guys, right? So that was a much better way to deal with it. And now a
1: little bit of a catch net.
2: Yeah, and now they do that, and there, we have special boat units that have a special, separate kind of training program. So there's a lot of different places they can. It's kind of like what happens in aviation. Everybody wants to be a fighter pilot. You got 500 guys every year that want to be a fighter pilot, and 40 are picked to be fighter pilots. Yeah, and the rest are picked to be helicopter pilots and aerofuel fixed wing pilots, and you know, and a few don't get the pilots, but you need all those pilots to do all those things. You know, fighter pilot is just one way of flying a plane in the military. So it's that same kind of breakout. It's not an all negative, I guess, engagement. There's a yeah. lot of positive just for having started in the first place.
1: Yeah. I, and by the way, great adjustment on that part. Like, I mean, it's a really big deal for folks. To make that adjustment, I always remembered, you know, perspective, right? I, I remember Andy Roddick. I played college baseball and tennis both. And Andy Roddick was a guy kind of my age. He was a little younger than me. And I came up with a lot of pro players as a kid. And Andy was a good player, you know, like he was he was like number five in the world and number seven in the world. And man, like he took all sorts of grief in the United States. Cause he didn't win grand slams. You know, he was in the middle of this era where you got all these great players and he's great, but he's just not quite as good as they are. Right. Yeah. And you know, and he's like, man, you know, the, the press just eating him alive. And he goes, Hey, you know, just to put this in perspective, like I'm one of the best 10 players in the world. That puts me on the starting team of the NBA all-star game, like every year. Right. Yeah. And I was like, Oh crap. Yeah, that's right. Like, like, yeah, right? And that, and every time I lose in the semifinals, you guys beat me up, like I'm horseshit, right? And it's like, I don't know if it's fair, man. And it was tough, man. I mean, they were really hard on him. They, you know, everybody wanted the great American hope. But I think, it, I think it's one of the challenges right now I have with America, Marty. I mean, between you and me and, you know, however many hundred thousand listeners, <laughs> right? Is that, man, when people get down on America, I'm like, dude, you have no idea how good you have it, right? Like, no you need idea. to pick up your passport, find out exactly how great this place is and the advantages no you have. Like when you talk about perspective, like you were born into the top 3% of the world. Just because you were born here, man, that, that's like a lottery ticket.
2: Yeah. Name all the other countries in the world where they're having a problem with millions of people trying to get in. Yeah. I mean, you there's ever, a reason.
1: You ever see if someone say, hey, Marty, I want to defect to Kazakhstan. I've never yeah. heard that before.
2: There's never. a reason. Back in the 80s, there was a, a a Parade Magazine article here in Virginia. The most graduates from University of Virginia it's a Vietnamese family. These guys had come off, you know, got out of Vietnam in like 73 or 74. And they had the, the, the mother and the father, they worked like five jobs, and they put all their kids, they were lawyers and engineers and doctors, and there was like eight of them. And I look and this is a long time ago. I looked at that and said, those guys just this isn't like the fourth generation in the United no. States. This is the second generation, and the oldest yeah. kids came came with them and escaped from Vietnam. That's what this country's all about. It's a yeah. wide open playing field. And the, I think people are taught, unfortunately, by society. And I talked about this a lot in the beginning of the of be different because you put like you're talking about you, you want to be you know, a pro baseball player and everybody around you. And they think they're doing you a favor, tries to talk you out of it, or tells you it's stupid or impossible, whatever. Well, those are the obstacles and the constraints and the restrictions on free thought and dreaming and thinking big. And you run into it almost to, to the extent that almost, almost nobody says, hey, that sounds like a good idea if you looked into how to do it. Yeah. So it's a weird thing. It's like, you know, there maybe one voice in the wilderness says, go for it, Trent, you know. And so why wouldn't you just say, to heck with this, I'll just be a shoe salesman or something? Because that's what the world's telling you to be. But you can do this all through your life. Yeah. You know, when I was 50, Two, I went and said, I'm going to get get the equivalent of a black belt in Muay Thai. And the guy who was training me had been a strike coach in Vegas. He did uh, Dillashaw. He trained Dillashaw. And and he had 100 professional fights himself in Muay Thai. Had an 8-inch reach on me. And it took me 15 months before I laid a glove on him. I thought I was a pretty good fighter. I had no clue because it was like 15 levels above anything I'd ever had to run into. Yep. And the first time I laid a glove on him, I actually punched him in the, in the nose i did a like a, a shallow jab and then a deep long jab and he walked into it and he looked at me and then i said oh i'm gonna die he's gonna kill me <laughs> so at the end of the hour session we sat down he looked at me and he said mr strong i've got to start respecting you as a fighter now you are now a fighter i've got to start protecting myself 15 months man yeah like 15 oh yeah months. that's not
1: like hey i went to practice today i think i'm gonna get him next week like you gotta be diligent man
2: yeah. And I'd come home covered in bruises and everything in my white voice. Why are you doing this? You know, I was a CEO. I was like, why am I doing this? Well, cause sometimes <laughs> you just have to pick something different, put yourself out there, get back into that humility game so you remember it's, it's okay. And once you clear your mind of what you think you are, or how big and bad you are or how bad you are, the negative side, you just go for it. Learn something new, learn something fresh. That's why so many, there's a lot of, you know, like Staubach and Gale Sayers, and they went off and became fantastic businessmen. They just picked another field, another sport. Yeah. Applied
1: the same principles, right? Yeah. How to work hard, how to prepare myself. Yeah. Find someone who's done it. You know, this is, you know, I mean, I think like 30 years ago, you said, hey, an adventure race. I would be like, holy shit, man. I don't know how to do that. Like who does that? Right. And so now I go, hey, listen, let me call my guy Marty Strong, man. Like I know someone who has done it and like, hey, this is how you're going to get prepared. Like, by the way, this isn't next month. Right, Trent? Like you need to get ready and it's going to take some time. And you're not getting ready in 30 days. You got to yeah. get prepped, man. And this, but I'll tell you how to do it.
2: In this country, in this day and age, with the technology at our fingertips, there's there's no excuse. I want to write a screenplay. I want to convert one of my SEAL novels. I just took a 36 course session with Aaron Sorkin, the guy that wrote *A Few Good Men*. And all okay, I couldn't have done that 15 years ago, right? But it's available. I mean, I can learn from the best. And you know, 15 bucks a month—that's how much it cost me to, to listen to that guy tell me how to do that. So just pick something, try something, do something different, get out of your comfort zone and and be different. Yeah. And be different.
1: I love that. Let's, let's, let's let's finish with be different a little bit, man. You got this book coming out, excited about it rolling out in 2024. What are the readers going to take away? I mean, they've learned how to be nimble, kind of the foundation of how to be and be in business, how you're going to show up, all those things. Then you're going to be a visionary which is that next step, really. Like, we're going to learn, like, hey, how to be a really good and and, and a leader.
2: Strategy, yeah.
1: Strategy, yes. And now we're going to be different. What's the key takeaways here, Marty, in this new?
2: So we've talked about a lot of it. There's a quote at the very beginning of the book by Madame Curie, the person that discovered radium. The universe abhors stability. There's no such thing as stability. And this is a really key concept for people to understand and it's a kind of a premise of the book. Everybody's aiming for control because they want stability. They don't want anything to change. They want their status quo, their their title, their pay, their everything to be nice and clean and steady and not changing. That's not the way the universe is structured. The universe is the exact opposite. The universe is, is improving things and destroying things and recreating things and, you know, in business if you decide that you're trying to go for stability, two other competitors leapfrog you and crush you in, in 12 months. So it's a mindset to believe that stability is the objective. It's also a mindset to believe that stability is an illusion. I tend to believe the second one is true. So if that's the case, then being nimble, being visionary and strategic is important. But also, you have to be different from the status quo of most of the people around us. They're following, they're obedient. They're following rules. They're compliant. They've got baggage that they brought up through... Their life, what their parents said were right and wrong, the traditions, the cultural stuff. But then they go into a company. The company says, you only work this way. This is what work ethic looks like, blah, blah, blah. And they sign up for it. And after 10 years in the business, they're pretty much necked down to they don't have a, a good idea that they would put forward. And because five years ago, they were stuffed five times in a row. And they said, OK, they don't want they don't want me to say anything. Yeah, That's not a human brain shortfall. That's the consequence of everything I just laid out. So how do you break out of that? And it's not an age thing. And how do you reinvigorate it? And how do you stimulate it? And how do you fire up that creative energy? And and a lot of things that we've been talking about here, you know, being humble, but also being very curious and taking some risks and learning some things that are new. That's what that third book's about.
1: Yeah, I mean, man, I always think like innovate, innovate, and innovate. Because I always have a lot of admiration for, you know, Coach Saban. Because, you know, when I was a young guy doing this audit of excellence, playing in, you know, three-state championships in a row that I was involved with as a high school kid, and then, you know, World Series. Like, man, when you're number one, like, everybody's gunning for you. If you rest on your laurels, you will not stay there. Right. Like you have to be innovating all the time. And I I think that's one of probably the big thing about Nick Saban that people don't really admire about him is that he's been number one a long time. You don't think he's made changes to stay there? Like he didn't do what he always did. If he did what he was still doing in 2002 when he won his first title or whatever, like people would be wiping the floor with his team. They would figure that out and be like, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's been doing it since '02. 2 That's 22 years or whatever. Like, not going to do that. Like, he's got to innovate, right? So I, I want you to give everybody the title of this book, the full title. Be different.
2: Be different. How Navy SEALs and Entrepreneurs Bend, Break, or Ignore the Rules to Get Results.
1: I love it. Yeah. All right. I'm not telling you to ignore all the rules. Marty is. I'm not telling. You, I'm not telling you to ignore them all, right? That's
2: only if you, you can't bend and break them first. Yeah,
1: that's right. You got to bend and break them, right? Like, yeah. I think there's a there's a lot of people that have become extremely successful because they learn to bend rules to their favor, right? I mean, that is so certainly there's a lot of people I've read about that, about their ability to create value inside the boundaries of whatever those boundaries are. Tim Ferriss is a good example of that, right? Where he's a guy who's always innovating. He's always bending the rules. He goes over and wins the the championships in Asia, right? Because he figures out the rules, you know, he
2: hyper- Saturated, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he hyper-saturated
1: for weight gain. Yeah. yeah, and then he realizes the rules are, hey, listen, if they get time three times out of the circle, they get big, they're dq Like, little guy's never had a chance. Because <laughs> yeah. know? like, he knows how to do it, right? So it's an interesting way how he bends the rules to become a champion. And so, man, it served him pretty well.
2: Yeah. But like you said with Sabin, you know, if you're an innovator, but you're lethargic, then everybody copies your innovation, right? Because it's easy just to copy what you just did, whether it's a, a cool football offensive scheme that nobody's seen before, whatever it is. Yep. And then you're like everybody else. There's an equalization that happens once everybody copies that. Everybody clones it and that's it. So if you were the original innovator and you decide that, ta-da, I've arrived, then everybody's going to equal you and some other innovators going to leapfrog past you and come up with something. And now you're back where you were to start with. So the ones that really stand out, you know, the Coach Walsh is and those kinds of guys, they are in a constant state of adaptation or a constant state of innovation. And they know that their own adaptation, innovation copied and mimicked. So they, they only have a shelf life of maybe two seasons before they better come up with something that's new and unique that gives them that that discriminating edge, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, 100%. had recently talked to Dr. Danny Purcell. And he Purcell was talking about a book based on those, those coaches, right? Walsh and Belichick and, and then Bill Parcells about, you know, these guys were all like three and 13, like before they ever kind of came out. And you know what happens when you lose? Winners find a way, man. They innovate. They go like, listen, man, I don't like to stand at the back of the bus. I don't like seeing our team listed last. I'm not having it. I won't stand for it. We're changing things because we got to do something different in order to be great. Yeah. How many times have you done that in your life,
2: Marty? god i don't know how many times i always use the analogy of, of boxing because the bad connotation that's given in society about losing so it and you know how baseball how that works you know it's you know most of the time you're losing but if you, you win 300 percent of the time or 30 of the time you're a superstar yeah so in boxing nobody just says i'm going to be the champion of the world and they walk into a ring with a, with the champion of the world and say let's do this what they do is they start from the very beginning and they learn what they they're, they're bad at. They learn they're not fast enough. They're not quick enough. They're not, they don't have the stamina. They don't have the wind. They don't have the techniques. And they learn that from coaches, but they also have to learn fighting somebody. So good coaches put them against people that exploit the weaknesses. So they, it's clear. Coaches coach them through the weaknesses, get them to overcome the weaknesses. And then they get in there and they've overcome the weaknesses. Now they're at parity. Then they up the game. And so they're constantly making you lose, so that you learn. So well, that and, the day and, and you're humbled, right? And then when you know that you're going to fight somebody, what do you do? The good coach says, "Here's their strengths, here's their weaknesses, here's your strengths and weaknesses. We've got to figure out a way to train you to offset." And you know, but that it's it's a thinking process. It's strategy. It's tactic. It's doing the work. It's putting in the training and the time and the, all the other things. And that's an Every walk of life. You have to take the fall, jump back up, and maybe the next time you won't get knocked down.
1: Love it, Marty. Marty Strong, ML Strong, by the way, in case you're, you know, reading those novels. Marty, thank you so much for being on the Winner's Find Way show. Awesome as usual, my man. I'll tell them again where they can find you.
2: Marty Strong, BeNimble.com. All
1: right, boom. There you go. Look for his new book, Be Different. I'm excited about reading that one. Are all your books on audio?
2: All the SEAL books are on audio. Two out of the four time travel books are on audio right now. And both Be Nimble and Be Visionary on audio. Do you read them? Do I read them myself? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. I have not read my novels since they went to final print. I had to listen to both Be Nimble and Be Visionary because I'm doing so many interviews and things that people were going, so so I bought your book. On page 43, you said um, that was two years ago. Yeah, I don't remember that. So I actually bought, I got my books on audio and on Audible and listened to them. It's okay. Because when you're working on the next book, you forgot everything you said, but the person who just knows. Yeah. So I've listened to those two books.
1: All right. Marty Strong, for everybody else, thank you for joining us on the Winterside Away Show. Our show airs every Friday, 12.30 PM Eastern, 9.30 AM Pacific on our leadership YouTube channel, LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live. Also check out our podcast on your favorite podcasting network. Like us, subscribe us, share us. We give great stories and always the best guests. Marty Strong, no different, my man. To everybody else, we'll see you next Friday.
0: Rebellious Infusions are organic-flavored water enhancers. Rebellious provides clean, focused energy in liquid packets. Just tear the corner of the packet and pour 16 ounces of water. Rebellious Infusions have no sugar, no calories, and up to 300 milligrams of antioxidants and loads of l thionine for brain health. Rethink your drink at drinkrebellious.com. For 10% off your next purchase, use the code 99999. Do you want to be our next guest? Or do you have inspiring stories to share? Or do you love to inspire, support, and empower thought leaders? Feel free to send Trent a direct message on Instagram or Facebook at Leadershipity.